Well, we're in a series of messages in the season of Advent that hopefully will help us to think about waiting. Waiting. The word Advent means arrival, referring to that arrival of the promised one, Jesus, which we celebrate at Christmas. But Advent is more than a day. It's multiple weeks that lead up to Christmas. And so Advent is more than a celebration of the birth event, but it also recalls that great anticipation and that long await for Christ's arrival that came for millennia before he actually came. The promise of one to come stretches back to Genesis 3.15, where God promised that in the seed of the woman, in the offspring of the woman, one day there would be one who would come who would crush the head of the serpent and overturn the curse. And that promise of redemption, they really, those promises really only grow and swell through the rest of the Old Testament so that we're trained as we read the Bible chronologically to be looking for the seed of Abraham, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of David, the suffering servant. And that anticipation throughout those Old Testament days, of course, just grew as God's people waited for the arrival to come. And waited and waited and waited. But in time, at the right time, Jesus came. God came. Praise God, he came. And so as Christians on this side of his coming, we celebrate Advent or Christmas, yes, by looking back with thankfulness and awe at the actual arrival and, and walking ourselves through the anticipation of those who waited for that arrival to come. But, but also, as Christians, we, we look ahead in this month, look ahead to him coming again and putting all things aright. His plan is sure. But it's still not done. God's people are still awaiting people. They've always been. We are awaiting people almost 2,000 years now since his first coming as we await his second coming. If you have a Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me to Isaiah 40? Isaiah 40. Open your Bible if you would. It's about, well, just to the right of the middle of most Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we'll have the text on the screen here in just a bit. And why are we turning to Isaiah 40 as we consider this theme of waiting? What does Isaiah 40 say about waiting? Well, it's really only found explicitly in one verse of Isaiah 40. You can see it's verse 31. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. That's the only word about waiting here. But the 30 verses before that verse are building up to it. They anticipate that. The verses before that key verse, verse 31, foretell of the advent, the arrival, the coming of the Christ. 
they announced to us Christmas 700 years before it happened. And they also tell us of Christ's coming again in glory at the end of the age. And so it's a fitting passage for those who waited for his first coming and for us who wait for his second coming. Isaiah 40. Look on as we read this whole chapter together. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. 
Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. There's a lot there. So let me give you the aim of this chapter right up front. God's people can be comforted by what God has promised and strengthened by God as they wait on Him to do it. God's people can be comforted by what God has promised and be strengthened by Him as they wait on Him to do it. But that's argued over three sections. So three C words will help us keep track of these. And the first is comfort. The comfort of God coming to his people. That's what we find in the first 11 verses, starting with verse 1. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, say to her, your warfare, literally your servitude, has ended. Servitude has ended. What servitude is being talked about here? Well, here's where we have to understand something of the historical context of this book we call Isaiah. When it was written, to whom it was written, and what for. Isaiah was a prophet in the 8th century B.C. God spoke through him to Judah, his people, about their sin and about God's coming judgment upon their sin. You see, God's people had so persistently and so blatantly ignored their God and, and gone after false gods that God decided he would use the Babylonians as a, a, a lesson, a, a, a season of discipline where God's people would be taken from their promised land and would be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. You get a glimpse of that ominous news that's announced throughout Isaiah just in chapter 39. That's the most convenient place for us to see it. Look there. Chapter 39, verse 6. Behold, the days are coming, Isaiah says, 
to King Hezekiah. When all that is in your house and that which is your father's have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons, skip ahead just a bit, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's what's coming. And while there were many stages of deportations that took place from Jerusalem to Babylon, it was 586 B.C. That was their 9-11. In 586 B.C., there's the destruction of the temple and the raising of the city down to, its, to the ground. So remember, Isaiah writes and lives in the 8th century, warning people about what's going to come more than a hundred years later. His ministry is forward-looking in multiple ways. He's warning people of coming judgment, and really, that's what is predominantly occupying chapters 1 through 39, the first half of Isaiah. Judgment is coming. But then at chapter 40, there is a turn, there is a message of hope, and that occupies the rest of Isaiah, the second half. It's as if in chapter 40, the prophet has been transported from his own time to people who are already in that Babylonian captivity that will take place later. And to them, he has a message of comfort. Comfort, says the Lord. He gives to them a message for those who have been through the captivity and will eventually come out of the captivity. So that's the restoration of God's people that's announced in verses 1 to 2. They will be restored to their God. They will be restored to the land. Slavery will come to an end. They will be pardoned for their iniquity eventually. But then the message of comfort gets more glorious, more lofty, even earth-shattering in verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare for God to come. He'll show up. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. Isaiah envisions a global construction project. You know how our highways today, especially in the West, they work their way around mountains and hills? I-25 isn't in a straight line from Albuquerque to Denver if you look on a map. The highway weaves between obstacles. Or in some cases, they discovered it would be more easy to just blow up a hill and then we can drive straight through it. Well, imagine preparation for a highway so massive and so important that all mountains are obliterated and flattened and all valleys are filled in and all bumpy spots are smoothed out. And who will travel on this unprecedented highway? God himself. God is coming to earth. So get ready. 
and his glory will be revealed. You see that in verse 5. His glory shall be revealed. His glory, his beauty, his greatness, his grandeur, his majesty, his power. His glory will be revealed and all flesh will see it. Global glory when God comes. Now, when does that take place? I mean, think about it. Restoration to the land, that's one thing. Servitude coming to an end, that's one thing. But God showing up in global, undeniable glory, that is quite another thing. When does that happen? To answer that question, let me take you in your mind's eye up to the peak of Sandia. From down here in the city, even if you've never been up there, from down here in the city, our Sandia mountain looks like a single mountain ridge, doesn't it? It looks flat. It looks one-dimensional. It looks like it could be some grand wallpaper that someone devised. It's a sheet of a mountain from our perspective down here. But atop the peak, we look down and what do we see? This thing's got ridges. There are mountain ranges here. You look down and you see, oh, this isn't one sheet of mountain. There are layers to it. And we know that Isaiah 40 actually has three mountain ranges of fulfillment to it. It looked like one mountain range when you just read it plainly in Isaiah 40, especially for those who lived in those days. But with some time and perspective, it's now clear that there are three layers to what we're reading in Isaiah 40. Here, here they are. There's the return from exile... Their servitude shall come to an end. But then secondly, there's the arrival of the Messiah when God shows up in glory. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And that's why all four gospel accounts quote from our passage in reference to John the Baptist, who was the forerunner before Jesus began his ministry. That's why Jesus' birth was announced by the angels with all kinds of glory going around. It's why John 1 can say that in the incarnation, we beheld his glory. That's Christmas. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. It's why Handel in his famous Messiah Cantata, takes language from Isaiah 40 to majestically celebrate Christ's birth. But that's the second mountain range. There's still one to come, and that's the return of Christ. That's still in the future, even for us now. The language of Isaiah 40 of global glory is even too large for Christmas. We're still waiting for more. Now, whether we put ourselves in the shoes of those who were waiting for slavery to end or in the shoes of those who were waiting for Messiah to first come or in our shoes, we'll reawait the day when Jesus returns. 
How do we know it'll happen? How do we know that this word of comfort and this lofty thing of God coming will take place? Well, there's the reliability of God's word that's unpacked for us in verses 6 to 8. Notice verse 8 mentions the word of God that will stand forever. What comes before it, verses 6 and 7, is a contrast. There's a contrast between human frailty and finiteness with the eternality and reliability of God's word. That's how you know comfort, comfort is coming. As for human beings, we're like grass which withers. We're like flowers which fade. We're like dandelions that disintegrate with only the slightest wind or breath applied to them. But God's word, whatever he speaks, is solid and dependable and unchanging and sure. The word of the Lord will stand forever. Because of him who speaks it, it is sure. It is rock solid. No promise is fading, expiring, uncertain, irrelevant, subject to our approval, awaiting scientific evaluation or validation or cultural acceptance. So, friend, feel afresh your frailty today. And I hope to be able to get to come back to that later on in the sermon. But, but also remember and stand upon, bank on the surety and solidness and unchangingness and eternality of God's word. Know that wherever you are in the Bible, wherever we are in the Bible as a church, whatever context, however it comes to you again, whether in your Monday morning Bible reading or listening to the Bible on audio in the car or in this moment right now, know that God's word is sure and unchanging and dependable and reliable. And so we should pass it on. There's the relaying of good news that he moves on to next, verses 9 and 11. And notice the voices so far in this chapter, notice in verse 1, God speaks. And then in verse 3, a voice speaks, presumably a heavenly voice. And then verse 6, a voice says to Isaiah that he should speak this message. But then in verse 9, all of God's people are called on to spread the word. They are to be heralds of good news. A herald. Picture like a a movie of olden days, and you know, an old kingdom, and a king has an announcement for his people, and there's some dude in fancy garb who's got a trumpet, and he goes, and then he says, hear ye, hear ye. That's a herald. That's what God's people are from top to bottom. They're to announce with strength and joy as they lift up their voices they say, God is coming. In verse 11, they will say, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. 
and gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead them. Now in the New Testament, it becomes clear just how and to what extent God will shepherd his people and through whom he will shepherd his people. In John chapter 10, Jesus devotes a whole chapter, a long sermon, as far as you know, recorded sermons in the Bible go, not as long as this one. But in John 10, Jesus explains how he's the fulfillment of that divine shepherd imagery that was talked about famously in Psalm 23, but also in Ezekiel 34, and also here in Isaiah 40. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. My sheep will hear my voice, they will come to me, and I will make them one flock with one shepherd. So if you're not yet a Christian, if I can pinpoint something that should have your immediate attention this morning, it's that you need a shepherd. Jesus is that perfect shepherd. He has shepherded us all the way through his death and resurrection, where he laid his life down as a payment for our sins, taking on what we deserve. And today, perhaps, he calls you, calls you by name, and calls you to come in to receive his care and to be under his good shepherding. Would you do that today? And those of you who have done it, remember your caring shepherd and speak of him loudly and boldly with strength as heralds of this good news. Now the second C is character. There's the character of the God who comes. And this one we'll deal with a good bit more quickly. If verses 1 to 11 laid out the promises of comfort, the good news of God himself coming and shepherding his people, the question might still be asked. It, it might still be asked. It, it kind of was answered in verse 8 because he says so. That's what verse 8 really gets at. But the question might still be asked, but can we really bank on such grand earth-shattering promises coming to pass? And in this section, verses 12 to 26, it's as if God through Isaiah says, well, consider who it is that speaks, and God lays out, really, his attributes. In verses 15 to 17, he says that he is the, I'm sorry, verses 12 to 14 first, he says he's the God of creation. He's the God who made it all. Dust, mountains, they're like, they're like specks in his big hands. He didn't consult anyone when he created this world. And all that is. The deities of Canaan and Egypt and Babylon, they all had their own creation stories, origin stories. But they differ from the Bible's story of creation significantly. In those pagan stories, uh, a god who wants to create something either has to conquer another god in order to be able to create, or he has to consult another god in able to create, but with our God, the God of the Bible, who alone is God, 
He alone is around at creation. He needs nothing and no one for creation. He's the God of creation. He's the God of nations. Verse 15 says, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. He's the God of gods, verses 18 and following. To whom will you liken him? Do you think he's like an idol? An idol that's crafted with human hands? It's stated so matter-of-factly in verses 19 and 20, this thing of idol-making, and yet it just drips with irony, if not mockery. They put gold on these little statues that you seek out a skillful craftsman to, to make it beautiful and, and, and to make it so that it stands up and doesn't fall over. There's your God. Or you could turn to the God who alone is God. These are no gods. Verses 21 to 26 just summarize. He's the God of all. Verse 22, he sits above it all. The inhabitants of the world, all 7.8 billion of them currently living, they are like grasshoppers. That doesn't mean that we're insignificant. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care. It means that he's not subject to it all like we are. We are like socks bouncing around in the washing machine or the dryer. We're just bouncing to and fro. We're just grasshoppers in this rough and tumble world. But God is sovereign all that, over all that rough and tumble stuff. And so he's not subject to it. He's above it. He's above it all. He's above the movers and shakers of this world. The most powerful world leaders. Verse 23 and 24 deal with them. He brings them to nothing. Scarcely are they planted, and then they're gone. The most powerful people of history, Pharaoh in Egypt, King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, Alexander the Great in the great Roman Empire, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, the Mings, or Marks, or that German man with the little mustache. Where are they now? They are dust. And they are confined somewhat to the dustbin of history. They are pulled out by us mostly these days as cautionary tales of what not to do. And how not to lead. And that absolute power does corrupt absolutely. God isn't threatened by any of them. He raises them up. He lets out their leash for a time. Mysteriously so. And when he's ready, they are done. As for the stars... Verse 26, lift up your eyes and see. Who created those? He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Not one is missing. Do you know how many stars are in our universe? I looked it up this week. 
We don't know. <laughs> but it's estimated, it's estimated that there are one septillion stars. Septillion? Yeah, that is one times 24, sorry, one with 24 zeros after it. That's why you just say septillion. You just make up a word for that kind of number. <laughs> and you know that the largest star in the universe, at least known, is 1,700 times larger than our sun in diameter, which means that 5 billion of our suns can fit in the largest star. You say, well, yeah, that's the biggest one. What's the smallest one? The smallest one is 0.12 solar radii. I don't know what that means either. It's like 1.21 gigawatts. I don't know. But I, but I know this. It's one-eighth the size of our sun. So uh, that's a small one then, right? Yeah. But that is 20% larger than Jupiter, our largest planet. He brings each of these out every night. He knows each of these by name. They are his stars. If he is sovereign over stars, he is sovereign over his people in Babylon, he is sovereign over whatever you're going through right now, you're more important than these. Now remember Isaiah's context and situation. Remember that the Isaiah of Isaiah 40 was transported to speak a word of comfort and restoration, even global glory and divine shepherding, to a people who would find themselves in captivity in Babylon for decades. What encouragement is there for them during those days of captivity? What encouragement or consolation is there for those who find themselves smack dab in the middle of the servitude, not out of it? And before we get an answer to that, let's just remember that we, Christians today, are in a very similar boat as they were. While we have two mountain ranges to our rear, we still have one mountain range that's still out there, still ahead. We are still awaiting people. The New Testament calls Christians exiles and strangers who are not yet to their homeland. And so we wait. And does Isaiah 40 have anything to say to us while we wait? Any immediate help while we wait? Thirdly, the consolation to those who wait. That's what we see in the last few verses. Look at verse 29 to the end. Here's the consolation. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Now notice, I started reading in verse 29. And in this section, we've got a couple of verses before that. So notice that before consolation, 
There's a little dialogue that takes place in verse 27 and 28. There's a, a small confrontation that needs to happen before there is consolation. Here's the confrontation, verse 27. Why do you say, as God's people, why do you say that your way is hidden from the Lord? Why do you say he doesn't see, that he doesn't know what you're going through? Apparently, God's people had gotten hold of that idea, and they kept saying it. Literally, the Hebrew says, they kept saying. Why do you keep saying? Apparently, they had come to think and kept saying that God had forgotten them there. They concluded that that which is our right, that which we deserve, that which is ours, is disregarded by God. In other words, they were not doing very well with standing on the promises and waiting patiently for them to come. They were walking by sight, not by faith. And it was serious enough and persistent enough that here they need rebuke. Rebuke! Why do you say? In other words, you shouldn't. Have you not known what God is like? Have you not heard what he has done? It doesn't say, do you know? Have you heard? It says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Meaning, they do know some stuff about God. They have heard some things before. And so they don't need instruction. They don't need motivation. They don't need clarification. They need recollection. Now, in some other parts of the Bible, uh, doubt and lament are met with sympathy and compassion and patience. But here, it's just tough talk. The chapter began with comfort, comfort, but when God's people will not stand upon those promises, God comes with a more direct word, and sometimes we need that. We often need comfort and sympathy and patience. Weep with those who weep. But sometimes we do need a direct word from a loving brother or sister. Cut it out now. Some of you need to hear me say to you today, that which you've been thinking about God, that which you have been saying, the way you speak about him, you know better than this. You know better than this. You know what he's like. You know what he's done. You know how faithful he's been in your life. You know, verse 28, the Lord is the everlasting God. He's eternal. He has no end. He had no beginning. Bank on his eternality. Flesh out the significance of his eternality for your petty momentary problems. I say petty momentary problems. Not without sympathy. It's just that it was in 2 Corinthians 4, which Kara read for us. This light, momentary affliction is working for us in eternal weight of glory. You know 
Those in Babylon who complained to God, they knew he's the creator of the ends of the earth. If he's the creator, then he is the sustainer. Then he is the sovereign of it all, even to the ends of the earth. There's no place we could ever go, no place we could ever find ourselves in where God is not there and he's not in control. You know, don't you? Our God doesn't faint or grow weary. And there is nothing else like this that we know of in this world. Everything in this world is uh, facing entropy, the scientists tell us. Everything is wearing down and wearing out, including you and me, but not God. He doesn't wear out. His understanding is unsearchable. He's all-knowing. The implications of that are massive and far-reaching. It means that nothing catches our God off guard. He, he never sets reminders like I always have to do. He never forgets. He never recalls. He never has to say, oh, forgot about that today. He's never behind schedule. He's always right on time. He was right on time as Abraham and Sarah awaited a son. He was right on time through the book of Genesis. And those of you who've been with us as we've studied it, we, we know what that means. He was, he was right on time in Joseph's imprisonment and then exaltation. He's always right on time. And there is comfort and strength for those who remember that and recount that and preach that to themselves as they also remember who they are. Verse 30, even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. Uh, children seem to have boundless energy until they don't. Until they run out of gas, they fall asleep in the back seat of the car, and you got to carry them in like a giant, heavy, stuffed animal. <laughs> Young men, oh, they are our best candidates for sport and warfare, but they still run out of steam. They require nightly sleep. A small tear in an Achilles heel can ruin the career of an athlete, and a little bullet can take out a Navy SEAL if it hits the right spot. All of us are fragile, fleeting, finite, not self-sustaining. That's true physically of us, and it's even true internally, emotionally, and spiritually. Many of us feel weary, exhausted, about to faint. But here's the consolation for fragile, weak, finite people who are weary and exhausted on the inside and deep down. God 
has infinite strength. He's got bonus strength. He's got superfluous strength. And he's not stingy with it. He gives power to the faint, to him who has no might. He increases strength. He will renew their strength so that they mount up with wings like eagles and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. But you must wait for it. That's the condition here. You must wait for him. It's they who wait for the Lord who shall renew their strength. We all know what it is to wait, don't we? Waiting for the semester to end, waiting for Christmas to come, waiting for retirement finally to get here, waiting for a future spouse to introduce themselves, waiting for a check to arrive, waiting for the scan to come back, waiting for the holidays to end already. We know about waiting at stoplights and checkout lines and doctor's office and jiffy loops. What do you do when you wait? Occupy yourself with distraction? That's what I do. Just get through it? Maybe think of other things. But the kind of waiting in verse 31 is not the kind of waiting you might do as you wait for your oil change. It's more active than that. There's a kind of passive waiting. That's what we know, right? We, we know about that. You wait until it's done. But there's an active kind of waiting, a biblical kind of waiting that's talked about here. This idea of waiting on the Lord and waiting for the Lord is all over the Bible. And when you stack these verses together, you begin to see what this waiting really means. Like Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 130, verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. Waiting like this is anticipation of what's to come, however long the wait is. Waiting like this is actually trust. It's faith. It's rest. It's being at ease and assured. And when we're not at ease and we're tempted to worry, tempted to fret, getting restless, well, we fight. And we fight with what we know. We remember. We recount. We rehearse. We believe it again. We believe what we know. We believe who God is. We believe what he said. We rehearse what his word has told us. Or as Ray Ortland puts it in his definition of waiting, which is better than mine, he says, it means to live in confident, eager suspense. It means to live with the tension of promises revealed but not yet fulfilled. This waiting is not killing time. It isn't sitting around drumming your fingers. It is waiting on tiptoe, waiting with eager longing 
So while you wait, whatever it is you're waiting for, something small, something big, while you wait, don't just wait. Really wait. Wait on the Lord. Wait for Him. Wait for His timing and trust it. And those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and, and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Now, those are all really lofty images. And so we should state and clarify, it, it, this doesn't mean you always feel like a bald eagle soaring over all the fray down below. Now, you, you don't always feel this strong. These are still the same people, remember, who are frail and weak and dust upon the scales. This is us. But as Kara read for us, 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure of the gospel in these bodies of jar, jars of clay. Clay, dry, crusty, fragile. But the gospel's within, so that we know the surpassing power doesn't come from us in these jars of clay. The surpassing power comes from God. And we wait most of all, in all our waiting, let us wait most of all for the completion and consummation of all that Isaiah 40 promised. So much of it is already to our rear, but some of it is still to come. And this is what we wait for. As jars of clay in this fallen world, as exiles and strangers who are not yet to our homeland, we wait for heaven. We wait for Christ to come again. We wait for the day when his glory will be globally realized and acknowledged. We set our hope fully on that day. Until then, we can be comforted by what God promised to do and we can be strengthened by him while we wait on him to do it. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Help us to believe it. Help us, Lord, to live it out. Help us as we believe it and preach this to ourselves. Help us to hold it out to the world. You have made us to be heralds and we are thankful for it. We're thankful for all your great grace and all your big promises, and we trust you for your plan and in your timing to bring it all to completion because of Christ. Amen.